the first chapter of Luke. We're going to be in verses 5 through 23. Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 23. And while you're turning there, I want you to think with me about something. The story of Christmas lays some pretty heavy demands on us, doesn't it? Just think about this. Think of the things that we are expected to accept about Christmas, things that this story calls on us to embrace as fact, things on us that we are to believe as we read this story as we find it in Scripture. Angels appear to an old man and a young virgin and in dreams to the young woman's husband or the the man that she is pledged to marry. The old man and his wife are, are beyond childbearing years, and yet miraculously they find themselves expecting a son. This son, who in the angel's words is going to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. The young virgin is expecting a baby too, but this child is conceived by God, and he is going to be the son of the Most High God. The old lady's baby recognizes the virgin's baby while they're both still in the womb. Genealogies claim to prove that the virgin's baby was the fulfillment of God's ancient promises to David, even back to Abraham, and even all the way back to the first man, Adam. And then there are more angels, a whole lot of them. They appear to a bunch of shepherds in a field one night to tell them about the virgin's baby. And there's a man who had been waiting for the virgin's child because the Holy Spirit had told the man that he would not die until his eyes would see salvation. And when he does see this baby, he rejoices and he prophesies over him. There's an old prophetess too. She's been worshiping God night and day for years on end. And when she sees the virgin's baby, she gives thanks to the Lord. Then there's also this star that appears to a bunch of foreigners from a distant land. And this star shows them where the virgin's baby is. How in the world did they know that that is what the star was for? How did they know this? The star would take them to a little rinky-dink rough town in the middle of nowhere. This town that had been prophesied long ago to be the birthplace of a very special king. Now, there's another king, too, only this is an angry king, and he goes on a murderous rampage. He unwittingly fulfills a prophecy from almost seven centuries before, and to top it all off, the virgin's baby is God himself, God in the flesh, God's word dwelling among us, God with us, God speaking to us face to face. That's a whole lot to swallow, isn't it? There's a lot of amazing stuff in this story. But you know, the fact is that many Christians today do not swallow a lot of this story. There is a 1998 study that found in one major denomination, 60% of its clergy, the pastors, the ministers, 60% of them did not believe in the virgin birth. We can only guess what that number is now, 18 years later. 
And even while three-quarters of Americans, whether we're Christians or not, believe in the virgin birth, here's where we Christians stand when it comes to celebrating Christmas. The Pew Research Center found that only two-thirds of Christians see Christmas as more of a religious holiday than it is a secular one. Let that sink in. A third of Christians, at least a third of Christians, well, for them, Jesus is not really the primary reason for this season. It's the presents and the chestnuts roasting on an open fire and time off from work. Those are the priorities. That's the reason for the season. But what about the folks who were there for the real thing? <laughs> what about the, the people who were actually there? How did they react? This is something that's fascinated me for a long time. These were real people. They were not characters in a Christmas pageant. These are people who lived and breathed like we do. And they were there. What did they experience? How did they respond to the birth of the Messiah? Well, this is what we're going to take a look at today and, and also on Christmas Eve and on Christmas Day. We're going to take a look at how the, the eyewitnesses to Christmas responded to the coming of the Messiah. And today we're going to focus on the very first person to catch a glimpse that God was about to do something really big. And this is a priest named Zechariah, and we meet him in the Gospel of Luke. Luke wrote the most comprehensive account of the coming of Christ. There is a short uh, account at the beginning of Matthew, and there's references, of course, to the coming of Christ in the famous and eloquent opening of John's Gospel. I invite you to read that later on today. It's not even Christmas until I read that passage. There are also countless references to the coming Messiah through the Old Testament, and Isaiah 7.14 is a prime example of that. It says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. But Luke's account is the Bible's most comprehensive about the birth of Christ. His Christmas account weaves together the stories of the births of John the Baptist and, of course, of Christ. And it ends in chapter 2 with Christ as a 12-year-old. A 12-year-old just amazing everybody at the temple. He's on the cusp of manhood. And so there are 127 verses in Luke about the birth and the childhood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now Luke, in the very first verses of, of his gospel, tells us exactly why he wrote all this stuff down. He is writing to an otherwise unknown Christian named Theophilus. We don't know any more about him. But here's what Luke says to Theophilus about why he's writing. He's writing in verse 4 that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And so here it's a little ironic that Luke begins with a story about an old priest named Zechariah who was not certain at all. <laughs> he was a priest of God who demanded proof from an angel of God. He was a priest who found himself asking, how shall I know this, even though the proof that he was looking for, he already knew intimately from the Word of God. And so even though our cultural concept of Christmas is largely defined by a case of the warm fuzzies over hot cups of cider, we've got to work at freeing ourselves from that version of Christmas because if we don't, brothers and sisters, we lose sight of something that is very significant and important. 
You see, the coming of Christ brought a great deal of trouble to the hearts of many of those who witnessed the first Christmas. And that's because the appearing of the Messiah meant that everybody was forced to make a decision about Him and about who they would follow themselves or God. Christmas, you see, is not about poinsettias and cookies and ugly Christmas sweaters, is it? It's about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's about the fact that every human being is a sinner who needs a Savior and how our God answered that need. Christmas, brothers and sisters, is about God and about what God has done and absolutely nothing else. And when God appeared in the flesh, everybody who witnessed His coming was placed in this uncomfortable position of either admitting their sin and their need for a Savior or denying Him and trusting in their own righteousness. We're going to experience a little bit of Zechariah's discomfort today as we take a look at him as he expresses his unbelief about what God's messenger was telling him. God disciplines him for his unbelief. And through that discipline, eventually Zechariah does come around to see things God's way. But here's the big idea of what he learned. And it's the big idea of what you and I need to learn. That when God speaks, he always speaks the truth. And when He speaks, He demands a response on our part. And that's because when God speaks, He's never just making conversation. He's revealing Himself to us. And that means that the only worthy response to God's voice is to believe Him and to worship Him and to obey Him. And that begs an awfully important question for us. What is our response? What is your response to the coming of Christ, to Advent, to Christmas. Well, we read our passage a few minutes ago, so we don't need to read it again. So let's go ahead and dig in and see the first Christmas through Zechariah's eyes. We meet him and his wife Elizabeth in verses 5 through 7, and we find out that they lived during King Herod's reign. King Herod was the Jewish king of Judea, and he answered to the Romans. And I'll tell you what, he was not a nice man. We see this in Matthew's account of Jesus' birth when he orders all the baby boys under two years old to be killed because he's trying to kill Jesus. And so think about that for a second. Here's another response to the coming of Christ. A Jew who wanted to kill Jesus from the moment he was born because he saw him as a threat to his power. Did it not occur to him that if Jesus really was the Messiah, that that meant that in trying to kill Jesus, he was trying to kill God, he was trying to oppose God, he was standing against God? That's never a position I want to find myself in. But the fact is that there's also evidence in Matthew that that Herod really wasn't all that serious about God. Anyway, because Matthew tells us that he had to ask what Scripture prophesied about where the Messiah would be born. He didn't even know his own Scriptures that well. But back to Zechariah and Elizabeth. Unlike Herod, these were really good Jews. They were, they were good and godly people. Verse 6 says, says that they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. And not only that, as a priest, Zechariah was an expert in the Word of God. He was one who was responsible for teaching the God's law to the people. And as we're going to see, he was also responsible for helping to carry out all of the, the physical duties and needs around the temple. 
But Zechariah and Elizabeth also carried a very human burden. Elizabeth was barren. She wasn't able to have children. And this meant that she and Zechariah were never able to count as one of their own blessings, one of God's great blessings, as it's spelled out in Psalm 127. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. In fact, being childless in that time was despised and even ridiculed. We see this in 1 Samuel 1, a good bit earlier, but Penina is ridiculing Hannah. And it says her rival used to provoke her grievously and irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. That's just downright mean, isn't it? And so Elizabeth and Zechariah felt this kind of pain. And even more, Luke says, they're also advanced in years. That means there's just just no way they're ever going to have children. This is just not going to happen and this is the heartache that Zechariah carries with him when his once in a lifetime opportunity comes to serve his God in verses 8 through 10 we see that he's chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense and here's how that came about way back in first chronicles first chronicles 24 during David's time the priests were organized into 24 divisions to serve at the temple because there were so many of them each division would would take turns at ministering at the temple for for a week at a time Zechariah's division of Abijah was one of those divisions and now it's their turn this is this is something they'd done many times before in fact twice a year about twice a year their turn would come up But there were thousands and thousands of priests in each division. And so in Zechariah is chosen by a lot in verse 9. This is an amazing event in his life. It's extraordinary. Because as the way then the way that the priests saw this, this lottery, this lot that was drawn, this was not governed by chance. It was governed by God. When you drew that lot, it was God choosing you. And so Zechariah felt that same sense of high privilege that every priest felt when the duty fell on him to burn incense at the golden altar inside the temple in the holy place. The holy place is just one step away from the holy of holies. Only a curtain separated the two. The holy of holies was where only the high priest could go once a year to atone for the sins of the people. But the holy place is just outside the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. And this is where Zechariah was about to go, into the holy place. This was as close as he would ever get to the Holy of Holies because he wasn't a high priest. And so lighting the incense was a daily duty performed by a different priest chosen by Lot every day. And so as the priest that was chosen by God from among thousands on that day, Zechariah would light incense as a symbol of the prayers of the people who are gathered outside in verse 10. But you know, before we step into that holy place with Zechariah, uh, there's a backstory that we need to understand. The last time that anybody had heard from God was about 400 years before this moment. In a word of prophecy that we find in the book of Malachi the prophet, the very last book of the Old Testament. And the message that God delivered through Malachi was not a pleasant one at all. 
Malachi had pointed out the neglect and the false teaching and the corruption of the priests and how the people had begun to neglect their offerings and festivals of the temple because they had lost their respect for the office of priest. And so God rebukes the priests in Malachi 2.8. He says, but you have turned aside from the way and you have caused many to stumble by your instruction. And he goes on in verse 9, So I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. And then in chapter 3, God says that He's going to bring judgment. That's one of our favorite subjects, isn't it? Imagine being one of those priests and hearing this. Malachi 3, beginning in verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And then in verse 5. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. That is the last word that anybody had heard from God for 400 years before this day when Zechariah draws his lot to do his priestly duty. God's people have been waiting all this time to see how God is going to bring judgment and purification to Israel. And so now it is that moment for Zechariah to step into the holy place. And when he steps in, very quickly, he's surprised. He finds that he's not alone. Luke 1.11 and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. 400 years, there'd been no angels, no messengers from God, no prophets, and no words from God. And now here's an old childless priest named Zechariah, and he's face to face with an angel of the Lord. Imagine that. You know, I don't know what angels look like because I've never seen one to my knowledge. There are some very hard to, to, to grasp just descriptions of them in Scripture. They're hard to grasp because we just can't imagine what they're, they're, what they're describing. But I think it's the reaction of the people in Scripture who encounter them that speaks volumes, that says that angels are so magnificent because their reaction is to want to worship the angel, as if he were God himself. That's how magnificent they are. Later on in the Christmas story, we see shepherds. They're full of fear when the angels show up in their field of sheep. Zechariah has a similar response in verse 12 of our passage. He was troubled when he saw them, saw the angel, and fear fell upon him. I imagine the reason for this fear is because angels are created beings who always live in God's presence. They are always in God's presence in the spiritual realm. And so when they manifest themselves to us, they have an appearance that, that might be not unlike the appearance of Moses' face when he came down off the mountain from the presence of God. Exodus 34, 30 
describes it. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. That's that's what a man looks like after being in the presence of God for a little while. Imagine what an angel must look like having lived in the presence of God. But the fear that the people in, script, in Scripture uh, experience when they counter, encounter angels tells us that, that angels are nothing like those little statues we find in the gift shops, right? They are magnificent creatures. But all to say, whenever God sends an angel, it's because God has something very important to say. And here might be the real reason why people are so scared when they see an angel because God is never interested in idle conversation. God wants to say something and whatever an angel has to say is always about the fact that God is about to do something. And what God is going to do according to the angel that is standing before Zechariah is 100% grade A miracle. There's no other way to explain this. Miracle number one, of course, is that, the, that an angel is speaking to Zechariah. That's a miracle enough in itself. But miracle number two, we find in verse 13, the angel tells Zechariah, your prayer has been heard, and your wife will bear a son, and you shall call his name John. It's going to happen, Zechariah. Miracle number three is who this child is going to be. Verses 14 through 17. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. That's how Elizabeth's baby recognized Mary's baby, by the way. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and, to the, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And so there's Zechariah standing there in the holy place trying to digest what's going on, trying to digest the fact that an angel is telling him things that have not happened yet. You know, but we have the beautiful advantage of being able to look back and, and to see each of these things did come to pass. Later on in Luke, we see that Elizabeth did indeed bear a son in verse 57 of chapter 1. And not only that, this son grew up to be not only great, but in the words of Jesus later on, he became the greatest prophet ever. In fact, Jesus said that this John was the very messenger that Malachi had prophesied about in Malachi 3.1 and that he is the Elijah that is mentioned in the very closing words of Malachi. Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of their fathers to their children, and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And so even Christ later on affirms what the angel is saying here to Zechariah. 
that the son that is to be born to Elizabeth and Zechariah will come in the spirit and power of Elijah. This does not mean that he will literally be Elijah, but that he comes in the spirit and power of Elijah. There is no such thing as reincarnation, and the Bible is not confirming it here. John the Baptist uh, denies that he is actually Elijah in John 1.21. But John the Baptist is the one who comes in the spirit and power of Elijah. And that is, he comes to fulfill the same kind of role that Elijah had. And that was to call the nation of Israel to repentance from their sins. And that's exactly what John did. And the result of that repentance is expressed in the idiom that he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, which just simply means that God's people, as they return to him, they're going to become a nation of peace. They'll be a nation of peace because they will have peace with God. In other words, the angel is saying to Zechariah that God is fulfilling his promise, his promise to bring judgment and purification to Israel. And so there Zechariah is, standing there in the holy place and he hears all of this you're going to be a father you're going to be a father you really are Zechariah and you're going to be the father to that messenger that is mentioned in Malachi and your son is the messenger who will prepare the way for none other than God himself imagine hearing that about your child And so what is the response of the very first person on earth to realize that Christmas is coming? Skepticism, unbelief, doubt. Look at verse 18 of Luke chapter 1. Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. In other words, he's saying, you know, angel, I want some proof here before I'm going to believe you. Zechariah's doubt is first and foremost about whether he and Elizabeth really are going to have a baby. This is something they have desired for a very long time, something they've prayed about for a long time. And notice he focuses on on his and, and Elizabeth ages and the impossibility of this happening. There's just no way. We're too old. He's not focused on what the angel says about who the child is going to be. He says, I'm old and she is too. There's just no way this is going to happen, Mr. Angel. It just isn't going to happen. And the only way I'm going to believe it is if you prove it to me ahead of time. And so this expert in the Scripture, whose duty it is to teach God's people his word, is forgetting Sarai in Genesis 11, the barren wife of Abraham who gave birth to Isaac, and Rebekah in Genesis 25, Isaac's barren wife who gave birth to Jacob and Esau. And Rachel, in Genesis 29, Jacob's barren wife who gave birth to Joseph. Manoah's barren wife who gave birth to Samson and Judges. And Elkanah's barren wife, Hannah, who gave birth to Samuel in 1 Samuel. He's forgetting a lot, isn't he? In other words, Zechariah, he was a man who knew his scriptures and yet he doubted. And when his great moment of faith came, this expert teacher of God's word, well, he forgot God's word. He just couldn't accept that God could do such an incredible thing. 
even though an angel of God was standing before him and telling him that God would do such a thing. And I think there's a lesson for all of us in that. You know, we're, we're big on teaching straight from the Word of God around here, and rightly so, amen? Because we all, uh, you know, how in the world are we all going to know the Lord in whom we put our trust if we don't understand what God is saying about it? And so this is valuable for us to approach scriptures this way. But you know, many of us are veritable walking encyclopedias of Bible knowledge. Not only can we spell Melchizedek, but we even know who he is and what his significance is. Some of us know all the ins and outs of eschatology and can explain in great detail the difference between a post-millennial and a historic premillennialist. Some of us have read every book there is on Christian marriage, on Christian parenting, on Christian this and on Christian that. Good things to do. Some of us have read our Bible many times through, just like Zechariah. But you know, when the rubber meets the road, when we're face to face with God right in the middle of our troubles in life, do we believe him? Do we believe his promises? We often want proof from God, don't we? We want that proof before we take the step of faith. How shall I know this? How shall I know that this is the right course of action? How shall I know that this is what you want me to do, Lord? How shall I know that you are working in this situation? How do I really know that all things work for good for those who are in Christ Jesus? How shall I know that being a godly wife really will bear eternal fruit? How shall I know that showing grace to my daughter will show her who you are? How shall I know that putting away my anger as your word commands me to do will really make a difference? How shall I know, God, without a shadow of a doubt that you really are there? Well, I think the angel's answer to Zechariah is really a good answer for all of us because of what's behind it. We see his answer in verse 19. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. In other words, Gabriel is saying to Zechariah, I am Gabriel, the angel whose name, by the way, means the strong man of God. I'm the same angel who appeared twice to Daniel. And you ought to know that through me, God is the one who is speaking. And that, Zechariah, should be enough. When God speaks, He speaks the truth. When He says something is going to happen, it's going to happen. And so Gabriel is saying to Zechariah that if you doubt me, you're doubting God Himself because I speak the truth that God has told me to tell you. And so because Zechariah doubts this, of course, God through Gabriel disciplines Zechariah God makes him mute until John the Baptist is born because, in verse 20, you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And they were fulfilled. When it came time for Zechariah and Elizabeth's baby to be named, Zechariah wrote these great words of faith. His name is John. And then God returned his ability to speak. And what did he say? What were the first words out of his mouth? after probably 10 or 11 months, maybe. 
He praised God and he prophesied about the Messiah who was not yet born. In verses 68 and 69, this is the beginning of this glorious hymn to God. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. What great words of faith. And then, of course, the boy that was born to Zechariah and Elizabeth, he grew up, and he grew up to be the man that Gabriel said he would be. But here's why I think Gabriel's answer to Zechariah's doubtful questions are so important to us. Why is this answer so important to us? I think this is something that we can take home from this story of, a, of an old man who's surprised by an angel. An angel who tells them marvelous things, things that seem for the moment way too wonderful to believe. Gabriel, you see, reminds Zechariah that God is the God who speaks. And when God speaks, He always speaks the truth. And God's voice always means that He's doing amazing things. Things that He has planned since before the foundation of the world. From the very moment that God spoke the universe into being, He has been speaking to us about His plan to redeem us through prophets like Abraham and Moses and Elijah and Jeremiah and so on and so on. It is through these prophets that God has given us the bulk of Scripture which we believe is the Word of God. It doesn't just contain the Word of God, it is the Word of God. The Holy Spirit worked directly through the personalities and experiences and the faith of those authors of Scripture to convey exactly what God wants us to know. Just like Gabriel conveyed to Zechariah what God wanted him to know. And so the result is that God is the source of Scripture just as He was the source of Gabriel's message to Zechariah. And so since these words to Zechariah are true, because after all, they came from God, this means the rest of Scripture is true as well. Scripture is God speaking to us, to you and to me. God Himself revealing Himself to the likes of you and me. Hallelujah. And this brings us back to our, the big idea of our passage. When God speaks he demands a response. And that's because when God speaks, He's not interested in idle conversation. He's revealing Himself to us. And that means the only worthy response to the voice of God is to bow down and worship Him and to believe Him, to obey Him. You know, this miracle of an old woman, pastor child, bearing years, having a baby, this is small potatoes compared to the miracle that speaks of even greater things that God is doing. This greater miracle is one that would happen to Elizabeth's cousin, a young virgin named Mary, who would give birth to the Son of the Most High God, who is conceived by, not by the will of man, but by the Holy Spirit Himself, God. And it is through that child that God speaks his final word. And all of us must respond to this word one way or another. The author of Hebrews puts it best in the first four verses of the letter to the Hebrews. Listen closely. 
long ago and at many times and in many ways. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That means the work is done. We are forgiven. And he sat down having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. That, my friends, is Christmas. That's what it's all about. Christmas isn't a Hallmark movie. It's not a pile of gifts under a tree. Christmas is what God has done, and it is the certainty of what God is going to do. What God has done is speak to us through His Son. A Son who came in the flesh so that He could purify us of our sins. But He had to die in our place to do that. Because if he did not die, we would. The wages of sin is death. You know, that's what the temple that Zechariah was serving in was for. It was to show us that the blood of goats and bulls could never make peace between us and God. Only the Son of the Most High God can purify us. Only he can wash us clean. Only He can forgive us of our sins. He is the only one worthy enough to do that. And what He will do is return for us someday to take us to our eternal home to live forever in the light of His glory. That's a promise that Scripture makes. That's a promise that Christ Himself makes. And how shall we know this? Because God has spoken it. That's what certainty is. And so what is your response to his voice? What is your response to Christmas? This is a question that every one of us must answer. Do you believe God? Well, if you believe him, hallelujah. And there's only one response to his coming, only one valid response to Christmas. And it is something that has nothing to do with all the trappings of Christmas. And this response is to bow down and to worship him and to obey him and to receive his grace by faith in the one whom John the Baptist was born to proclaim, the Son of the Most High God, Jesus Christ. Amen. And Merry Christmas.